Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, and we are speaking once again. We're, we're happy to welcome back to the Schwepp Matthew Newyar, Assistant Professor in Theology at Marquette University in the great state of Wisconsin in the USA. Matt, thank you very much for joining us again. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me. Now, we are going to talk about one of the weirdest and wildest books from antiquity, if we can even call it a book. That would be the Sibylline Oracles. Can you give me a potted intro to the Sibylline Oracles first? Uh, because a lot of people won't even have heard of them. Or if they're like me, they've come across them in a number of really weird, not connected contexts. Sure. And said, what is the work lying at the center of all these weird, unconnected sure. contexts? So the work lying at the center of this uh, is, is, yeah, as you say, a book or collection of books. Minimally a collection of books that are in their present form Christian. They were redacted, uh, probably put together in the 6th or 7th century. But we have quotations of some of them going back much earlier. And they, the manuscript tradition is a mess, <laughs> as, as you would always hope for these things. Um, so traditionally, because of, the, because of the manuscripts that fall in, I think, three major groups, um, the books that make up the Sibylline Oracles, this Christian compilation, uh, are numbered 1 through 14. But in the manuscripts that have book 10, book 10 is the same as book 4 in other manuscripts. And book 9 is also put together from pieces of books 1 through 8. So really you have 12 different books that are traditionally numbered 1 through 14 in the manuscripts. And our manuscripts are, you know... Uh, I think 14th century, 15th century primarily, but people are pretty sure that, you know, these probably put together in the 6th or 7th century, uh, but certainly uh, some of the books are, are quite a bit older. Um, and our main sort of early Christian uh, attestation of bits of the Sibyl and sort of cheerleader for the Sibyl uh, is Lactantius. So early 4th century, right? Third century. So we're sort of jumping the gun talking about this at uh, the beginning, as it were, of the third century, but never mind, never mind. Now, why is Lactantius, Lactantius, who also, acute listeners will remember, cites Hermes Trismegistus an awful lot, and maybe that gives us a clue to the answer to my question, exactly. why is Lactantius yeah. interested in the Sibyl? It's uh, not, I mean, it's not an uncommon early Christian apologist sort of approach to say, look, there are all these pagan fi figures that even though they may not have known it, attested to Christ and God's truth and things like that. Um, and so the Sibyl is invoked uh, by Lactantius as, as one of these figures who is incredibly ancient, um, sort of legendarily ancient, right? This is one of the things, when the heck was there a Sibyl around? How many were there? Right? Whatever, um, all this, all these problems that uh, are attached to this, this figure of the Sibyl. But yeah, as one of these proofs of evidence of the correctness of Christian tradition or Christian ideas and, and Christ, um, that's, that's why uh, the Sibyl shows up in, in early Christian texts. And, and it just takes off. Christians really, as you know, just, just embrace the Sibyl whole hog and you get Sibyls in the Sistine Chapel and all over Renaissance art and the Sibyl becomes this Christian figure. Now, let's back up. So we have this this group of texts that's very messy. This level of messiness, the only thing I can sort of, or the first thing that 
springs to mind to me from our period of antiquity is is magical texts, so-called magical yeah. texts, in the terms of the way that you have this kind of chopping and changing and, and recombination of parts to the point where even to establish a manuscript tradition is almost impossible. You have to at least kind of say, okay, there's three basic manuscript traditions and even those are complex, this sort of mm-hmm. thing. The Hechelot texts as well in the early yep. rabbinic milieu, I think, have that same kind of chopping and, and oh, I like this bit. I'll, we have the short version and the long version and we have bits chopped up and re- recombined. So that's what we're dealing with. But we're dealing with Greek hexameters, right? Yes. Um, I mean, the, the, the way that I think of these texts and what I would call them, in fact, for the most part, even the individual books, although not always, the, the individual early books, I think, especially book three can be called this, but certainly the collection as a whole is an oracle compendium. It is collecting pre-existing oracles and putting them together now in this one of these several manuscript forms that, that survives to us. And these things were pretty common in antiquity. Uh, generally not of such great length, right? This is sort of these 14 books of the Sibylline Oracles is sort of a compendium of compendia in some in some respects. Uh, but certainly in the Mesopotamian tradition, you have this. You have these, these uh, immense compendia of various kinds of mantic activities, right? Um, astrology and, right, monstrous births and all these different things. And it's quite clear there that, you know, by the time you get into... Pretty, the pretty late period for Mesopotamia, you've got these enormous series, right? The Extispacy series is of something like 100 tablets long or more. I don't know, right? It's, it's immense. But it is clearly compiled from these originally independent, smaller collections that had maybe a specific theme to them or whatever, and they get rearranged and sometimes left out, sometimes recombined. Uh, and I think this is this, this just kind of collecting of oracular material really is something that is pretty commonplace uh, in the ancient world, all over the ancient Mediterranean. Um, And I think this is actually something that's really important for understanding sort of like the early history of the Sibyl as sort of a figure in Greek consciousness um, and the transformation that become for her to be this figure in Greek consciousness to this literary figure, which comes later, really, I think. So let's go back in time and try to get some backstory. What is a Sibyl in Greek consciousness in the first place? Right. So our very earliest reference to the Sibyl is, I think it's it's sixth century, late sixth century, maybe uh, early fifth century, and we just get this this single line, you know, the Sibyl with a raving mouth speaks through a thousand years without any laughter or something like this, right? Um, and she's just kind of, it's, it's, it's clearly a single figure at that point. But certain like key figures about her are already kind of assumed, right? She's like name dropped, right? He doesn't have to explain who uh, the Sybil is really, but these sort of things about her seem already to be fixed. She's associated with really huge stretches of time, uh, pointing to her extreme antiquity. She's, uh, she issues oracles in a manic or ecstatic state, which is what we would expect Right, not not unexpected for 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 a Greek oracular figure, mm. right? Um, and uh, she does so without mirth, without laughter. Like th- there is this dour, down, doom kind of quality to the predictions associated with Sybil. Okay, so she's a female oracular figure who's kind yeah. of spouts crazy, scary prophecies. Yeah. 
prophecies of doom. Um, and early on in these earliest Greek uh, references where she's, you know, not really discussed, but just kind of name drop, right? She, she'll show up in some Athenian plays in Aristophanes. She's mentioned by Plato as someone who through prophetic madness speaks the truth. Early on, for the most part, she is not associated with cult centers. Okay. So she's not like the Pythia. She's not like the priestesses of Zeus at Dodona, which makes her more like these kind of quasi-legendary figures like Musaios or Bacchus. Yeah, or Tiresias, um, right, who also lives more than one human lifetime and speaks yeah. the future. And then later on, she's going to get associated with different geographic locations. And this is where we get the multiplication of the Sibyl. Mm. And so now there's going to be, right, as we, as we move into the Hellenistic era. Well, into the Hellenistic era, we get the Sibyl becomes really popular, especially outside of Hellas proper, sort of on the peripherals. Um, so in, in Ionia, um, there's uh, one of the most important early locations associated with the Sibyl is Marpessus in the Troad. Then she, there's going to be a Persian Sibyl, eventually a Delphic Sibyl. That's pretty late. But in the Greek colonies in the Italian peninsula, the Sibyl is huge. And Cumae, obviously the Cumaean Sibyl, is going to become the most important Sibyl in Roman times for a period. Egyptian Sibyl, Babylonian Sibyl, of course, a Jewish Sibyl, who some authors then equate with the Babylonian Sibyl, and on and on. And how many Sibyls there are depends on what text you are reading or what artist's work you're looking at. And at a certain point, it seems to be that collections of oracles that have been attributed to the Sibyl of a particular place get treated kind of like oracles from different cult centers. And so like, these are the predictions of the Babylonian Sibyl, or these are the predictions of the Cumaean Sibyl or, or, or what have you. Um, but sort of that transition from a single figure in our earliest references to these multiple individuals is murky and it's, it's really interesting, but there seems to be just lots of places that want to claim the Sibyl. Right. Now, I don't know if we can answer this question, but the Romans, the Republican Romans, the Romans actually yeah. at a, quite an early date had apparently a big oracular collection yeah. called the Sibylline Books, which yes. they would consult in times of emergency. It's like, okay, Hannibal's at the gates, get the Sibylline Books out yeah. and let's let's have an official consultation to find out what to do. How does this prestigious but Greek figure of oracular wisdom become so central in the Roman context. Obviously, the Romans, for context, are in Italy, with the south bit of which is Greek. And the Romans have, for hundreds of years, been in a position of looking to the Greeks for, let's say, higher culture. Stuff like literature and, and theater and um, astronomy and stuff like this that the Romans themselves have not developed. So they're in, in some ways um, learning from their southern neighbors. But does that explain how the Sibyl becomes a, a, as it were, like domesticated Roman figure? Um, I, that is a great question. That's a question I do not have an answer okay. to. But it is, it is, you know, one of these figures that's clearly a borrowed figure. It's a Greek figure, and yeah, as you said, right there is in the Republican period. There's a college of originally ten, eventually expanded to fifteen men, whose duty it is, when called upon by the Senate, to consult the official collection of sibylline books and see which which passage refers to the uh, disaster that is on Rome's doorstep, so they know exactly what action to take. Right? It's this. It's phenomenal. I, I mean, it, it shows the 
immense amount of respect and and trust in in just a oracular phenomenon in general mm. that was prevalent throughout Rome, right? I mean, I think this is something that again, Christian apologists uh, really try to try to leverage to their advantage. I think you see a lot in Justin Martyr, you know, talking about well, obviously, like you guys love prophecy and Christ was prophesied correctly. Like clearly this means it's true. Like how do we, t- right? And, um, and again, and Justin also refers to these pagan prophets who are very ancient and respected, like not as old as Moses though, right? And uh, <laughs> um, so so clearly you should respect, right? These Christian prophecies too. But I don't have the, the answer for that transition, but it is clearly like the Romans wholesale adopt the Sibyl. Okay. Uh, as, so, as one of their own. So we've got that as background now. So when we're talking about the early Christian story, because we need to understand that as part of the makeup of this text, right? Already the Sibyl is a, let's say, a Greco-Roman figure. She's yep. a female prophetess who can tell you what's going to happen in the future. And she emerges in Roman literature in really, really interesting ways. So Aeneid Book 6 by Virgil, which is the central propaganda piece of the Aeneid, which is a big propaganda piece for the Augustan regime, among other things. In book six, Aeneas goes to the Cumaean Sibyl. So you need a female wisdom figure to guide you down into the underworld. So he can go to the underworld and meet the spirit of his recently deceased father and learn about the future and see all these future Roman heroes who are sort of standing in a line waiting to be sent up to earth and incarnated to do great things for Rome. Everyone who hasn't read Aeneid Book 6 needs to go read it. The Sibyl there is described as this crazy, very creepy figure, very enigmatic and uncanny. And then we have this rather insane and very cryptic, and no one knows what to make of it, description of the Sibyl in Petronius's satiricon and we haven't had much cause to talk about the satiricon of Petronius on the podcast but everyone want, might want to check that out as well in this early latin novel at 448 we have um this nouveau riche scumbag Trimalchio talking about his encounter with the sibyl he says for indeed i saw the sibyl at cumai with my own eyes hanging in a bottle in ampulla pendere And when the boys said to her, Sibylla, what do you want? This is suddenly in Greek, Sibylla, Tithelis. She responded, Apothanen Thelo, I wish to die. Okay. The Sibyl's hanging in a (laughs) bottle. There's some mysterious boys asking her questions and her response is, I wish to die. I don't know what to make of that, but it's uncanny as hell. Yeah. So so there's a creepiness Um, about this Roman sort of literary sibyl anyway which which i find absolutely i and and you get you get these references um throughout so in um you know in the jewish tradition at least three i think four of the early books in the sibling collection are jewish in origin um one of which has a clear really big christian overlay and three of them don't one of them it is associate Sybil with Noah being one of Noah's daughters. And you get this association, yeah, with this antediluvian generation of these people who were human but superhuman and lived ridiculous lengths of time. And that pops up in different places in the sibling tradition. Um, Yeah, you get the Sybil associated 
both with the extreme recesses of human history and exceptionally long life. Perhaps part of that is because people kept inventing sibling verses, right? I mean, these things keep getting produced. So clearly the sibyl must keep keep issuing them. I don't know. Yeah. I wonder if you could tell us a little more about the strata of the sibylline yeah. oracles as we have them. And sure, sure, it would be sure. cool, there's only a degree to which this is possible, to try to reconstruct the steps at which this, um, the different layers might have taken form. Yeah, I think in some way the simplest sibling book is book four. Because it is very political, it is very historically oriented, it is quite clear who the bad guys are. Who are they? Well, as it stands, it's Rome. Right. It's Rome. Because it's a it's a Jewish sibling book, and presumably after the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple in seventy, uh, is certainly after is 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 the form we have it in, but it itself clearly clearly gives evidence for two distinct strata. The first part of the book is clearly an anti Macedonian oracle. It's an anti Greek oracle. So we're getting back unclear. to the Hellenistic period when yeah. the Jews in, in Palestine and, and related were in rebellion against... Well, that's a good question. There's the nothing Lucids. especially Jewish about the first part. Ah. And so some people have even suggested that this may have been, I mean, just from maybe anywhere in Asia, possibly who, possibly Egypt, possibly Asia Minor, possibly Jewish, but not necessarily so. Got it. Um, and it brings together two very typical sort of apocalyptic a means of constructing order out of world chronology, that there are uh, four world-conquering empires that uh, go sequentially, and that there are 10 generations of world history. And, and the 10 generations, uh, what happens is you get to the penultimate generation where the, if I'm remembering it correctly, um, the Persians rule the world, and so the 10th ultimate bad guys are going to be the Greeks, but the Greeks don't get numbered. Huh. And then after the Greeks, all of a sudden, it's all this very clearly Jewish stuff. And now we have a fifth, uh, a fifth kingdom and a 10th generation. It's Rome. And Rome is God's enemy. And Rome has done all this stuff. So it seems that sometime after the Roman destruction of the Jerusalem temple, someone has taken this pre-existing anti-Macedonian Right, a hexameter Greek oracle, right, very and with nothing particularly Jewish about it, and just appended this section. Like now, it's five empires, right, and we get the same we get the same uh, expansion of this four dominant empires, five dominant empires in Roman just straight up historiography. You get this too, right? It's borrowed. It's borrowed from the Greeks. You can see it in all these different places. You can go to the four ages of humankind, uh, right back in Hesiod, and, and um, you get the uh, in Ctesius's history. You get the sequence of world dominating empires, right? It's you, so you get this, and, and Rome just packs themselves on. Well, clearly, we're number five. We're the best. Uh, Book of Daniel, obviously, you get the sequence, um, and so there you clearly have a reuse of an older oracle for an expressly Jewish context. Um, you've got something a little similar in books one and two, which although in our manuscripts are divided into two books, clearly constitute a single logos. Because book three is then, I think is usually in the manuscripts prefaced, following the second logos and the missing bit of something else, right? Blah, 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 right? The, the, it's, the manuscripts are a mess, right? So book, book one and two are a single logos and it's really, it's quite lengthy. Um, most of it, it's clearly Jewish, 
follows Genesis, deals with prehistory. There is a weird insertion of a bunch of, of a section of the sentences of Pseudo-Faclides in the middle of it. So this is clearly something not original to this context. It was like, we're just going to drop some Hellenistic wisdom into the middle of this text for whatever reason. And this also is organized. There's going to be 10 generations of world history and right. Starts off great. And then it goes in the crapper and then there's the flood and things get good again. And then it goes and gets bad again. And as you get close to the end to what the last generation and the payoff, suddenly we get this huge, obviously Christian interpolation. It's all about Christ. There's a fantastic book by J.L. Lightfoot that's a commentary on the Sibylline Oracles. This is the best thing out there on the Sibylline Oracles. It's a commentary on just books one and two, but the introductory material uh, just on the Sibylline tradition is fantastic. I mean, it's it's the best, most up-to-date, most thorough thing out there. And she really thinks that this is entirely a Christian composition of the late second century. And it's dependent primarily, knows Genesis, uh, the weird stuff comes from First Enoch, and the Apocalypse of Peter, is what she says, um, which itself pulls on First Enoch a lot and right, all these other weird Jewish apocalyptic stuff. And and there she's she's arguing against earlier scholarship by uh, people like John Collins, who think like we've got an old Jewish sibling text that has this enormous Christian interpolation. And then as book two, which is part of the same logos starts, it's like, oh, and then we get to the 10th generation. And then again, it's this very typically Jewish language with no obvious Christian reference in it. And then we get some more Christian stuff at the end. So it, it seems to me, I'm more inclined to the, to the older view that we have a Christian, uh, heavy Christian addition and redaction of a Jewish sibling book here. Kind of the most clearly, obviously in, probably most studied of the of the of the books in this huge collection is book three at least among scholars of early judaism uh book three of the sibylline oracles is clearly jewish basically no christian material in there at all and it is obviously from egypt hmm. it's a very clear egyptian provenance egypt is in danger there's going to be a king from asia invade egypt it the weird thing is like it also uses all these right Homeric epithets and all this language borrowed from Hesiod, right? Because you have to fit the meter, and that's why right? that's right? you, and you so you get the gods mentioned, but you get a euhemeristic uh titanomachy in there to show you that the Greek gods are no real gods at all. Um, right? So you, you get all this weird stuff, and it starts off with the first about 93 verses of it, because it's almost a thousand verses long, clearly are dealing with sort of with the Roman takeover of Egypt in the time, you know, Pompey and Caesar and, and dealing with Cleopatra, Cleopatra the seventh. But that stuff doesn't seem to come up in the rest of the book. Some recently, more recent scholarship has, has argued to see this whole book as a unified whole. Uh, and I think that's kind of an overreaction arguing against these late 19th and early 20th century source critical approaches to this book is like these three verses are actually from this city here right. from this time period and those five are, it's Jewish. It's Hellenistic. I think there's some chunks that come from different times. I think that that first 90 or so verse preface is a later kind of updating preface uh, introduction to it, but they talk about the seventh King of Egypt, the seventh King of Egypt, which I think the, uh, the argument's really good. This is specifically about Ptolemy, uh, the sixth Philomater or Ptolemy the eighth Euergetes. And these are kings who are known to be generally positive towards the Jewish community in Egypt. At one point, 
uh, the text gets based, I would say it gets messianic, whether you want to call this figure actually a messiah or not, there's going to be a king from the sun who comes and does the work of the great God, right? And delivers all the people. And there's going to be peace and no more war. And he defeats the king from Asia, who's right, probably a Seleucid. And right, and then it's everything is wonderful. And I think this this king from the sun is the same as the seventh king, who's one of these Ptolemies who's going to protect the Jewish community there and get rid of the enemies. And you get this title, King from the Sun, in Egyptian prophecy, right, of this late period, like the Potter's Oracle. Mm. And so it's it's very Egyptian, it's very Jewish, and it's in this absolutely Greek literary form. And there are all these different sections that maybe this part, this part focuses on Asia Minor. Maybe they've incorporated a bunch of verses from originally a distinct oracular source. Who knows? Um, but you definitely have all these layers here. And then sometime, uh, you know, in the fourth century, Christians are compiling these things. And this is one of the ones that they compile because there's all this Genesis stuff in there. I think for a lot of these uh, sibling books, they look back to creation. And this, this sort of, uh, these modified recitations of the creation story of Genesis and the early history of humanity from Genesis is the real trigger for, for Christian adoption of them. Right. They said, okay, we speak this language. We can, we can use this yeah. stream of prophecy. Thank you very much. That's, that gives us a, a wonderful kind of window onto the general complexity and number of cultural currents going into this material, even though you haven't even talked about all the Sibylline oracles. That's just a, a little snapshot, a couple snapshots. Yeah. And our listeners are used to this sort of thing because we've talked a lot, for example, about the Hermetica. And, and in the Hermetic Asclepius, we also have this prophecy of Egypt's downfall, talking about the foreign rulers coming. And there's elements of traditional Egyptian religion thrown in there. But there's also elements of all manner of other stuff. And, and some people want to see the influence of Christianity on this material but certainly we see the influence of hellenic platonizing thought and it's all very very complex and melting potish now let's make it even more complex because if you read say the wikipedia article about the sibylline oracles the the word christianity appears big time if indeed our, our manuscripts probably go back to the sixth century we're talking about a, a time when Christians have taken over the Roman world. Yeah. In fact, the Western Roman Empire is, is in a state of um, impending progressive collapse. And uh, a, new, a new order is, is brewing, totally structured on, on this Christian way of life. But you also see the word Gnostic thrown about quite a bit, which is always caused to, to stop and say, okay, what do we mean exactly here by Gnostic? What Gnostic material do we find in the Sibylline Oracles? Uh oh now you're getting in areas out of my wheelhouse, I must admit. Th as you say, these uh, this corpus is, for, for one buck, <laughs> supposedly, right? It's enormous. Um, uh, many of the sort of later numbered books, they're obviously Christian. They're laid much later. Um, and those are the books I know far less about, being a poor Old Testament scholar. Um, <laughs> the term Gnosticism has, it has baggage, but has baggage because it's useful. Right, um, because because there 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 are real things that cluster, but is every time right? Um, and and from the stuff that I, I I work on primarily, right? We I have the same problem with the term apocalypse. I was going to say apocalyptic um, is just as problematic yeah. and slippery, but just as like, important. Is any section, any individual book of the Sibylline Oracles, or at least say of the first five books, 
the, the books that have the least substantial Jewish content. Are they an apocalypse? No, they're not. They're not. They're full of eschatological content. There's stuff about the end of the world, possibly a coming savior figure, but there's so much missing, uh, especially if you're inclined to, to, to say part of what an apocalypse is, is a mode of literary expression. Right. Their mode of literary expression is simply an oracle. They're Greek hexameter verse, right? Uh, Greek oracles. That's their literary form. And they don't have angelic intermediaries and all that kind of, all that jazz. Mm, you don't have a guided tour of the other world. No, you do not. It's interesting because the Sybil in book six of the Aeneid is, is a guide. Is a guide. That, that is arguably an apocalypse. Although um, scholars of um, Jewish apocalyptic will not feel comfortable maybe looking at that as the same genre mm -hmm. as, as what they see in, in their um, religious texts they're looking at because it's so uh, mannered and literary and composed for you know, sort of political purposes and all this sort of thing. But but so is Jewish apocalyptic, that being said. Um, can we talk a little bit about the kinds of prophecies that we find in in this text? Because I know that's one of the things that really interests you as a scholar is the ex eventu prophecy, the prediction of the future made after the facts have happened, but projected back onto someone like Enoch who existed before the flood. So when Enoch says yeah. that this and this is going to happen, you can say, ah, see, it's all been prophesied. Right. So I've, I've mentioned some of the stuff already. So in book three, there are three mentions of the seventh king of Egypt um, who is going to come. And there's actually some, there's legitimate debate about how positively this figure is portrayed. I think it is, it is quite positive, but, but there is, there is some ambiguity to it. Um, but clearly he's going to be a great military leader. Uh, numbering the king as seventh has to be counting from Ptolemy and reconciling modern countings and various ancient countings gives you some wiggle room as for who that could be. Right. Mm. Um, as I said, it's probably Ptolemy the sixth or Ptolemy the eighth. So it's clearly written say during that figure's reign or immediately thereafter, but sort of much as you get with the prophecies at the end of the book of Daniel about say Antiochus the fourth, this King will be boastful and arrogant and he will blaspheme the most high and he will set up the, abomination that makes desolate and he will do that right it's it's the same kind of thing it's predicting the things that have already happened but attributing these predictions to a figure of the very great past um, which is not something that is uniformly found in right apocalyptic literature right there's tons of apocalypses that don't do this most notably the apocalypse the revelation of john doesn't it has no interest in this kind of uh historical recitation and and pinpointing uh, historical actors who, I mean, yes, there's there's the mark of the beast and things like this, but it's not it's not this overriding uh, interest the way it is in sections of the Sybil. Yeah, um, interesting. And in terms of the end of the world stuff or the the coming great change that's going to happen, yeah. is there a kind of because presumably the whoever was the final redactor of this of this mess, yeah. right? they will have had their own ideas about this. Is there a degree to which the final redaction gives us a unified picture of what's going to happen at the end times? Or is it just it's too It's different messy? book by book. Right. Right. One thing you get in book two, sort of in this little slice where it starts talking about the end of the world between these two, obviously Christian sections, um, you get this great conflagration. Mm. You get this fiery, fiery end of the world which is one of the things that uh, Lightfoot in her commentary on it, she's like, you know, this, this emphasis on this fiery destruction really looks 
like the apocalypse of Peter mm. and, and various other things about, about the end of the world. And this is, there's clearly uh, in the Christian parts is kind of very, yeah, this, this kind of apocalypse of Peter kind of vision of the, 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 the fate that lies in front of us. But I mean, a fiery end of the world is something that Stoics also talked about. Yep. You know, there's gonna, it's all going to end in a great conflagration and be born again. Um, Clement of Alexandria and, in the, in the Stromates even says that, see, the Stoics were right about this. Yeah, they t- yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, you know, the, the Sibyl, the, the Sibylline books in particular, I think is extremely difficult to trace the directionality of influence and where all these influences come from. Because you have these ideas show up, right, within a couple centuries of each other in, in so many different contexts. And it's who got from whom is is I think a lot of times really impossible to to untangle, right? It's it's kind of like, well, where did narratives of a great flood killing everybody come from? Right. Who, I, everyone's got them. Who the hell knows where they came from? Mm. And maybe particular literary uh, representations affected later particular literary representations. Perhaps and sometimes you can argue that, but that's it gets dicey. It gets it gets really hard Great. Uh, to do. I think especially when you're dealing with something like this collection of sibling oracles, where they are consciously trying to mimic this particular style of of Greek epic poetry that for overwhel- the overwhelming majority of them, they're not super good at. Right. So is the meter right. dodgy and is the sort of Oh, the meter's so dodgy. Right. The meter is dodgy. Uh, and this is one of our problems with, we don't like, there's there's not a great critical edition of these. Uh, there are a couple of good ones. Gefkin is probably the best. There's a later one by, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Rizach, I don't know, R-Z-A-C-H, Rizach, I don't know. He had maybe a little more material to work with, but he's also much more keen on doing things like fixing the meter. Ah, uh, and which always gives me pause and things like that. It's sort mm. of much for your hand with emendation. And so, yeah, the me- the meter's dodgy. I think there's a lot of reliance. I mean, as there is in all this kind of stuff, so like recycling bits of really famous hexameter, right? You use these Homeric epithets. You use these phrases from Hesiod because everyone knows them, right? And mm. they fit the meter, right? You can slide them in. What's the morning going to look like? It's going to be a rosy fingered dawn, right? <laughs> like, yep. It's like, because it, you have the phrases, they fit the meter. And so this makes tracing the origin of like the ideas and harder because they're going to be expressed in such this artificial kind of way. That is not right. It's not the, it's not the native uh, language or mode of discourse of any of the people writing these things. Right. So thank you so much for that introduction to this wonderful, incredibly messy and delightful text. Now I know this takes us into the territory where you're not um, so deeply read, but what can we say about the Sibylline Oracles when they become a book and move forward into the future? The reason I ask that question is because this is a podcast devoted to the history of Western esotericism. And the way I came across the Sibylline Oracles was in an early printed work by a guy called Opsopeus, a hum- that's his humanist name, in which the Chaldean Oracles of Zoroaster, right? So Georgios Gemistos Plethon's own redaction of the Chaldean oracles, now attributed to Zoroaster, is published in print form 
alongside the Sibylline oracles and a bunch of other kind of loose oracular material from late antiquity that has come into the Italian Renaissance and become available to Western Europe and the printing arts via that channel. And so to this guy and to a lot of Renaissance and post-Renaissance Christian thinkers who are interested in, let's say, more esoteric sources of prophetic wisdom, like maybe trying to nut out what's going to happen in the future. Um, and this especially becomes a, a popular pastime with the Reformation and with mm. chaos. Uh, people going, yeah, but we have, we have to try to figure out what's going to happen. Like we must study prophecy. The Sibylline Oracles enters into that and becomes this incredibly fertile source for extra canonical uh, revelation. So what can you say about that process? It's really fascinating. And I think it starts really early in the divine institutions by Lactantius. Uh, when, when you get the Sibyl mentioned, you also get at the same time he's mentioning people like Histospes, right? The Oracle of Histospes, right? This, this, this Persian, this foreign kind of Eastern mystical, right? Uh, figure who we all know that they're like, well, well those, those Easterners are great at predicting things and right? astrology and all this stuff. And, and I think early on, the Sibyl kind of gets lumped in with them. Okay. Uh, as this, as this really kind of legendary figure of the deep past, who has associations with all of these different localities, and uh, certainly by his time, certainly with Babylon and Persia. Although that, those are not the earliest associations, but by the time you get into the Christian period, absolutely. And I wouldn't be surprised if part of it was just this this fascination with the East. Um, might play into the Sibyl's popularity, that especially with her association uh, with Judaism and then in the Jewish tradition being linked with Noah, um, this is going to make her exotic. And despite writing in Greek hexameter is not part of the Greco-Roman tradition in this perverse kind of way, right? Where clearly these things are as Greco-Roman as you can get in a lot of ways, but... Why are the oracles Chaldean? Why yeah. are they associated then with Zoroaster, right? They're not, they're not from Chaldea, right? <laughs> um, um, it's, it's this fascination with, you know, these, I think, these reputed sources of tremendous wisdom and mantic wisdom and mantic skill, probably to which uh, at this time uh, into the late Middle Ages and early modern period, there's really limited access, Mm. And the access you have is uh, that these these people have is stuff that happened to be preserved by the church. Yep. And so you have the Sybil around because the Sybil got got domesticated to Christianity. She became a Christian prophetess. But I think there's still some of this sort of, and, and I think sort of certainly the content of of a lot of the Sibylline material that plays into this this exotic, weird, esoteric, doom sane kind of aura about the sibylline books yeah that's what i what i love about this material it's not only esoteric i think in the way that all intentionally obscure intentionally open-ended prophetic work is esoteric because the whole point is that you you seek the hidden meaning and seek what what's what she really saying right that's always there in this kind of literature but it's also kind of a cult if we want to sure. if we want to talk about occult as a kind of tone or mood, this sort of baroque, um, detailed, full of lore approach to these matters, because 
going back to those Roman depictions of the Sibyl, and also I would add to that Plutarch's depiction of the lunar Sibyl in Decera, which mm. you can argue is Roman. It's it's um, second sophistic. It's it's Greek. He's he's a Greek writing in Greek, but he spent time at Rome, and he's very much a Roman in a certain sense, which is also uncanny as hell. There's this uncanny nature to the the Sibyl, which sets her apart from other revelatory sources. I find she's scary, you know. She's kind Absolutely. of scary, and that's really interesting. Um, Hermes Trismegistus isn't really scary. Um, he might he might spout a bit of doom now and again, like at the end of the Asclepius, but he's not scary. The Chaldean oracles are not scary. They're yeah. A bit occult. They have this kind of weird invisible worlds full of different levels of fire and all this kind of stuff. But again, they they, they depict a very kind of well Platonist worldview, um, which is which is full of light, really. But the Sybil stuff is full of dark corners, and it is. And you know what? I and this is something that I know I know people have done some work on, and I'm really not familiar with it, but. I have to imagine there's just there's good work that's been done and it has there has to be fascinating work yet yet to do, especially for for this early modern infatuation with the Sybil. I mean, how many revelatory sources do you have available that are female? Mm. I think the gender of the Sybil probably adds to her exoticness, right? Especially in a Christian context. And what do you make of the fact that this figure, this prophetic figure? Um, who is sort of uniquely dark and uniquely foreboding is also uniquely female among your sources for this. Um, and I, I think there it's, it's really interesting. And I am sure that part of what is going on in, in the reception of the Sybil is somehow driven unconsciously to some degree by the fact that when you get when you leave the Greek world behind and you don't have Zeus's priestesses in the Pythia anymore, and Christianity has taken over the Western Empire, especially the Eastern Empire as well. So you don't have female sources of, of mantic knowledge. They are few and far between. Right. I mean, you have female prophets mentioned in the scriptures. They don't get any whole books. They don't get big chunks of their prophecies recorded. But here, you know, 10,000 verses of the Sibyl... Why, yes, let's copy that and pass that around. <laughs> Matthew Nuyar, thank you very much for speaking to us about the Sibylline Oracles and stay esoteric. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a blast. <laughs> <laughs>